0: Welcome to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We are an evangelical free church seeking to honor God by making disciples that learn about, love like, and live like Jesus. Well, I hope that you are well this morning. I hope that you, as I am, are encouraged by our corporate singing uh, with God's gathered people. So thank you, Joel, and thank you for the rest of the band Uh, In helping us enter into worship and preparing our hearts to worship even further by hearing the word of the Lord uh, as it was read and prayed. And thank you, Tom, as well. Uh, This has been a uh, joyful yet tearful Sunday morning already for us. So let's see if I can keep it together. Uh, This morning, we are in Matthew chapter 6, verses 16 through 18. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. If you're new to the Bible, don't worry. Uh, there's a table of contents at the beginning of the Bible. will help you find the Gospel of Matthew, which is about two-thirds of the way in. And if you look at the page, you will find that there's a bunch of numbers on it. Some are big, some are small. The big numbers are chapter numbers. We're in chapter 6. The small numbers are either footnotes or verses. So uh, look for the one that's not a footnote, but the verse 16. This morning, I have already felt uh, the yo-yo effect of thinking and preparing and preaching on the spiritual disciplines and on fasting. And so let me read this for us, and then we will jump in. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you they have received their reward but when you fast anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting that your fasting may not be seen by others but by your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you this seems like a fairly innocuous text pretty simple pretty straightforward And yet, I think that if we interrogate this text a little bit, if we ask it some questions, we will find that at the heart of it is an invitation into a deeper relationship of God, a deeper sense of our own humanity. And if we accept those invitations, a deeper encounter and a deeper sense of human flourishing. Let me pray for us. And we'll unpack what I mean by those. Father, grant us to see what is in your word for us this morning. Speak to us in this message, both corporately as your church and individually as disciples. Clear away from our hearts any of the debris of our lives that might keep us from hearing from you this morning. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be honoring in your sight. Amen. Well, as has already been unpacked in a couple of prior sermons, our text this morning starts with the word, when. Kenyon and uh, Jim both already uh, talked about this in their sermons on giving and on prayer. But I think it's fair to start there again, that this is not a text that begins with if, as in, if you feel led to fast, if you feel obligated to fast, or if you desire to feel super spiritual and so you decide to fast. It doesn't begin with if, but rather when. As in, I, your master, am assuming you're going to fast, so when you do. Or as in, because you already know that you should fast, let me tell you what you should do when you fast. So our text begins there. The assumption that Jesus makes is that we are fasting, but that our fasting might be misdirected or misguided or misformed. Not, he does not assume that we need to be told to fast. And so we start here with a question, because fair is fair. Fair. But if we're going to interrogate this text and ask it some questions in order to unpack what it would mean for us, it gets to ask us some questions. And the first question it asks us is Are you fasting? Are you seeking the Lord in this way? Now, I think that might be a surprising question for some of us. I I understand that. Donald Whitney, who is an expert in the history and development of Christian spirituality and the spiritual disciplines, writes this about fasting. To those unfamiliar with fasting, the most surprising part may be that the discovery that Jesus expected his followers would fast. And since there is nothing in the sermon or elsewhere in Scripture indicating that we are no longer to fast, and since we know that Christians in the book of Acts fasted, you can see that in Acts 9.9 and 13.2 and in 14.23, then we may conclude that Jesus still expects his followers today, you and I, to be fasting. You know, there's a, a segment of the American church, it's actually probably broader than the American church, but there's a segment of the American church that thinks that true spirituality is found if we discover some secret knowledge or uh, if we are able to encounter something that, that takes our faith uh, deeper in a way. And so we, we get obsessed with just consuming information. And so at one point in our culture, I've actually noticed there's two in Tucson. There's none left in uh, the area I come from, but we, we used to have these things called bookstores, and particularly Christian bookstores, which were, were filled with, with white pages bound together with glue and stitching covered in text that were supposed to teach you how to take your Christian faith deeper. And they would be on all sorts of subjects. And it's not uncommon for us to to just mainline podcasts. We put them into our ears instead of into our bloodstream, but we're looking for more information, so we're trying to listen to as much as we can. We're trying to read as much as we can. We're trying to discover some, some truth, something out there that'll help us take the thing that we are supposed to experience each moment of each day and drive it deeper into our hearts as if there's some sort of secret knowledge that if we just obtain, we'll be able, we'll be able to sense more of God's presence. And I just want to let you know, I I love podcasts. There are probably some downloading automatically onto my phone right now as I speak. Anyone who's been in my office knows that I read my fair share of books, and if you want to have a throw-down conversation getting into the, the dense theological weeds, I'm your guy. But I also want to say that there is something ordinary about the Christian life, and there's something very simple about it. Not simplistic, but simple, something accessible to all, something almost populist in nature. And, you know, I think that if we, were to look at, uh, if we were to look at church history and think about these spiritual giants that we've heard of and that we might have read about in those books we found or in the podcasts we listened to, what we would find is more often than not, they're not grounded in necessarily some deep and dense theology, first and foremost above all but that the spiritual giants whose relationship with the Father and with Jesus, who we would want to reflect and whose relationships we would be ambitious for and admire if they were in our own lives, their spiritual lives were often marked by the simple spiritual resources of an open Bible, a bent knee, and an empty stomach. Those things are not the ABCs of Christian discipleship that we move on from after a certain period of time when we've hit a particular level of Christian maturity. They're the A to Z running from beginning to the end of the Christian alphabet that are supposed to infuse and run throughout our entire Christian lives. And so some of you I know in here desire a deeper walk with Christ. You desire more connection with the Father to feel that you are his son or his daughter. And if you desire that, I think we have to ask the simple question, are we fasting? And let me acknowledge two things up front here. We live, first, in a, a highly therapeutic culture. Which means, if I were to ask any one of you, how is your spiritual life going? How is your walk with Jesus? What, you, what is your relationship with the Father like? Your initial response would be likely something that begins, well, well, I feel, and you would start to look inside, and you would start to think, what does it feel like to me in this moment? Do I feel good about it or do I feel bad about it? Do I feel full or do I feel empty? And we would value that and put that ahead of, say, a reflective audit of our lives. So let me be clear when I talk about wanting to experience more of the Father, when I talk about wanting to feel a proximity to Jesus as I walk with Him, I I am actually not talking about feeling in the way that our culture generally thinks about it and speaks about it. What I mean is that in Scripture, God reveals by the Holy Spirit actual objective ways that if we are doing them, it does not matter what your feelings tell you because we know Scripture tells us That inside of us is this thing called the flesh that wars against the spirit and deceives us about who we are, where we stand with our God, and what it means to follow him. And so we are in a constant struggle to put the flesh to death, and we need to be careful for our feelings can often lead us astray. We expect our feelings to be provoked to uh, something akin to the extraordinary when we're actually close to God. And yet you and I were made, as Genesis 3 tells us, to walk with God in the coolness of the day. In Genesis when it describes that. It describes it with language that means that it's habitual, that it's regular, that it, it takes place on a frequent basis, that that was the standard That was how things happened, which means if that's what we are created for, shouldn't there be something unusually for our thoughts, but something astoundingly normal about what it means to walk with Christ? And here's the second thing I want to say, and that's when I talk about fasting and the role it has in Christian discipleship, I speak as a Protestant Christian, which means I am not saying that you are not truly a Christian if you are not fasting. Which means I am not saying that God is upset with you if you are not fasting. Which means I am not saying that your salvation in some way depends on you fasting. I believe that we are saved sola gratia by grace alone, sola fide by, through faith alone, sola Christus in Christ alone, sola scriptura as revealed in the Holy Scriptures alone, sola Deo Gloria the glory of God above all alone. As such, what I am about to tell you, I am trying to explain how we can enter into deeper and greater relationship with our God, not the standards of salvation. That, as we have already sung, was accomplished for us on a wooden cross in Rome. So, I just want to get that out of the way, and I want to acknowledge my debt, actually, uh, to somebody else in this, because I'm going to borrow Stacey Roden th- via Jim Roden's category of invitation. Fasting is an invitation to our flourishing. It is not a requirement for our salvation. We have a difficult time seeing this often because we've lost our bearings on relationship between discipline and grace. We have forgotten the Christian motif, the Christian theme of death and resurrection. Fasting is a kind of dying to self where we withhold from the body that which our body needs to live, and we withhold it for a period of time that we might, in the death of our body, experience the resurrection of our spirit as we feast not on food but on the word of God. And we listen not to the groanings of our stomach but to the voice of the Holy Spirit as it comes through Scripture. So let's go back to that idea from Donald Whitney. My guess is that most of you are unaware of the expectation that followers of Jesus would fast. But similarly, my guess my guess, is that you would be willing to fast regularly if you knew the joy of an encounter with God the Father through Christ the Son present in you by the power of the Holy Spirit and his word in fasting. So are you fasting? Or probably more accurate question for many of us, would you be willing to fast regularly in order to experience the flourishing which Christ intends for you through relationship with the Father in him. Let's interrogate this text a bit then. What is fasting? What do I mean when I ask, are you fasting? Well, Whitney helps us, and he says, fasting, he defines, a voluntary abstinence from food for spiritual purposes. Let's note two things in that definition. First, Fasting is done for spiritual purposes. It is not just enough to not eat. You're not fasting if halfway through the day you realized you skipped breakfast and you're about to skip lunch, and you think, like, well, I guess at least this is an opportunity to engage in a spiritual discipline. No, fasting is an intentional thing you do in order to commune or connect with God. There are spiritual purposes behind it. That's actually one of the reasons we see Jesus criticizing the hypocrites in this passage. They don't do it for spiritual purposes, they do it to be seen by others. That is one of the most fleshly purposes, one of the most natural in terms of the fallen world purposes that we can have. You know, the scriptures actually juxtapose those two things. To be spiritual is not to be out of the body, away from the physical. To be spiritual is against the flesh, to resist the natural inclinations of our fallen sinful hearts. So that Paul, in 1 Corinthians 2, writes this. For who knows a person's thoughts except for the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand things freely given to us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person, as opposed to the spiritual person, the natural person does not accept these things of the spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So we must fast, not for the approval of man. Not for natural, as Paul says in this text, or fleshly reasons or ends. Those the Gospel of Mark will call the cares and concerns of the world. And so we fast seeking spiritual purposes, seeking to commune with our Father who is in heaven. And fasting, the second thing I want to point out, is traditionally abstinence from food. Which means, by the way, we have to point that out because many of you have probably encountered traditions of Christianity in terms of the high church where you you abstain from certain things, you fast from certain things that aren't food necessarily but indulgences or hobbies or enjoyments. Like you might fast from alcohol or certain modes of sleep or social media or watching sports or sex or sweets, some kind of indulgence you fast from. And while actually scripture gives us warrant to understand that to be a spiritual practice, the primary spiritual practice of fasting is actually to keep ourselves from food. There are a couple of reasons why that is, and I think we see them if we ask the question, if that is fasting, why then do we fast? There's a handful of reasons for that. I'm going to give you three of them. Fasting reminds you who you are. This is why when we fast, I say it's an invitation to greater human flourishing, into a connection with our humanity, because fasting reminds us who we are. In Genesis 1, humanity is created in the image of God. We are formed from the dust, and we are filled with his breath. And the concept of the image of God in ancient literature means that we are kings and queens under God's dominion which explains the original job description of the first people. God says, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion. That's what we're told, to rule over. We are kings and queens. And when we fall away from God, when sin enters the world in Genesis 3, we read a few chapters later in Genesis eleven six and 7, And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, they all have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. He's speaking about the Tower of Babel, the construction of a massive temple reaching into the heavens, and God looks down and says, Because of how I have created them, because of the power I have given them, this is only the beginning of what their sinful inclinations can accomplish left unchecked. And so it is because of that, that is the rationale that God says, Let me confuse their language. Let's confuse their speech. And so the sinful temptations and the pride of our hearts because of the glory with which God created us in his image can often lead us astray. And in leading us astray, it leads us to neglect a rather important little four-letter word in Genesis 1, that we were made like God. There's so much grandeur in that. To be made like something is to have similar qualities or characteristics, to to have a sort of uh, parallel manner or function, to bear a resemblance to or to share something fundamental in essence in common. And yet to be like something also recognizes that we are not that thing. I have an older brother. His name is Catch. And if you meet Catch, you would say he is like Tyler. We have similar mannerisms, a similar cadence of speech, a similar sense of humor, a similar taste in music. We like the same sports teams. Our facial structures are similar. All sorts of things about us are similar, yet fundamental about each of us is that we are different people. For Catch to be like Tyler is for them to be two different and unique individuals. Similarly, we have a lot in common with the God that created us because he imbued us with his image, and yet, to be like him is fundamentally not to be him. And that is important because one of the first things that fasting reveals to us is that we are not God. We fast to remind ourselves who we are, and specifically, we are not the divine. We are not God. So when you fast and your stomach rumbles, in spite of all the power and the strength and the stamina and whatever godly qualities you have, when your stomach rumbles, you are reminded that you are not your maker, you are not your creator, you are not your own sustainer. But the Lord is. Look at this in Psalm 3:5. I lay down and slept and I awoke again. Why, because of my own power and grandeur? No, because the Lord sustained me. Or Psalm 4:8, in peace I will lie down and sleep. Why? Because I am so powerful and so mad- majestic that I created all things? No. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Psalm 139, 13 and 14, for you formed my inward parts, you knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. One of my favorite songs is written by a man named Dustin Kentrew. He played in a band called Thrice, and he wrote this song called Beggars, based off of the last words, supposedly, that Martin Luther, the theologian, said. And in them he sings about who we are and about our smallness, before the cosmos, sings thus, all you great men of power who boast of your feats, you politicians and entrepreneurs, can you safeguard your breath in the night while you sleep? Keep your heart beating steady and sure. As you lie in your bed, does the thought haunt your head that you are really rather small? If there's one thing in this life that I know, we are beggars all. Further on in the song, he sings, all you big shots who swagger and stride with conceit, did you devise how your frame, your body, your structure, how your frame would be formed? If you'd been raised in a palace or live out on the streets, did you choose the place or the hour you'd be born? We are in God's likeness, and in many ways that makes us glorious creatures, the apex of creation itself. And yet... We are limited and we are finite. And so let's not miss this. Some of our limitations are the result of sin and death entering the world through the sin of our first father and first mother in Genesis 3. But some of our limitations are the good and gracious gift of a father who made us not him, but like him. We need sleep and we need food because we are not God. Fasting helps us recognize these things both. Fasting leads us to rest in and accept our identity as creatures, beloved by God and bearing his image, yes, but limited in so many ways. Fasting helps us recognize and mourn our sin, and in this way, fasting directs us back to the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Fasting also, then, reminds us who God is. One theologian has written, nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say, true and sound wisdom, consist in two parts, knowledge of God and knowledge of ourselves. But while joined in many bonds, that is, put together by many things, which one proceeds and brings forth the other is not easy to discern. What comes first, knowledge of you or knowledge of God? I don't know. That's what he says. But he goes on to say this later on knowledge of ourselves not only arouses us to seek God, but also, as it were, leads us by the hand to find him. So if fasting reminds us of ourselves, reminds us of who we are, man created in God's image, then fasting also directs our minds to God. And it reveals who he is, because when our stomachs grumble, God's does not. Why? Because God is eternal. He did not not uh, we did not make him, and he does not need us to sustain him. He, by contrast, always was, always is, and always will be. Psalm 90, verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth of the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Job thirty-six, twenty-six: Behold, God is great, and we know him not. The number of his years is unsearchable. Revelation 1, 8, God speaking, I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. Not only that, God is independent. He has no source, no one sustains his life for him, and he has no need of sleep. Job 41, 11, who has first given me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole of heaven is mine. Acts 17, 24, and 25, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Fasting by prompting us to reflect on our creaturely nature turns our minds to contemplate God's, and I'm sorry, Tom, I'm going to make up a word, creatorly (laughs) nature. So that's one and two. Here's the third thing I want to tell you that fasting does. Fasting reminds you of where your love should be. Far too often, people think that Christianity is fundamentally a religion of self-denial, of stoicism. If anything... If there's any evidence of that, you would think it would be the spiritual discipline fasting. We deny ourselves some pleasure of the world in order to greater commune with God. Isn't that some aspect of self-denial? Like I mentioned before, many of you from a high church background have probably observed Lent, which can be a beautiful spiritual practice and a formative time in the year where often people give up things that are close to their hearts, things that they long for and desire, in order to to connect with God in a greater way. But so often, these are done half-heartedly. And we see the sort of hypocritical, box-checking religion which Jesus is criticizing here. We do it in order to prove to others outside that we are a good religious person. But the Protestant, and especially the evangelical tradition, has always understood that love Desire and joy sit at the very heart of what it means to follow Jesus. Helpfully, C.S. Lewis said this famously in a sermon titled The Weight of Glory. He preached If there lurks in most modern minds the notion to desire our own good and earnestly hope for the enjoyment of it as is a bad thing, I submit that that notion has crept in from Kant or the Stoics and is no part of the Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises and rewards and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem the Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like ignorant children who wants to go on making mud pies in the slums, because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at sea. We friends are far too easily pleased. Lewis argues that Christianity isn't about self-denial, but about loving that which deserves to be loved in the place it is supposed to be loved. And who, having encountered God after going without a few meals would say that fundamentally was an act of self-denial. That fundamentally was me subjugating my joy for some sort of cosmic buzzkill of stoicism. No, to encounter God is to encounter infinite joy itself. Fasting like any discipline, whether spiritual or otherwise, is to forsake the immediate gratification of our pleasures and our desires in order that we might find something greater. So the athlete puts away the ability to go do what he wants in order to train for the competition in front of him. The musician puts away his desires in order to go and engage in whatever his pleasures of the time would be in order that he might have the freedom to play the strings, the keys, the drums, or the horns in whatever way he and his skill imagines. Discipline is always the subjugation of a lesser pleasure for a greater one. As Donald Whitney says in his book, discipline without joy is drudgery. What then do we do in fasting? In fasting, you are saying something with the whole of who you are. You are saying something with your body and with your mind, with your will and with your affections. And let me unpack what those are for you, just in case you're unfamiliar with these terms, it's not a problem. In the Christian tradition, we believe that we were made both physical and spiritual. That we are body and yet some sort of immaterial substance which you cannot touch and which you cannot see. And the Bible describes this immaterial substance using the words heart or spirit, sometimes soul. Soul. But we see in that immaterial substance three fundamental faculties. We see the mind, which thinks, understands, reasons, decides, holds our ideas. We see the affections, that we feel love, that we sense things, that we can intuit things. And we see the will, the desires, the longings, and the wants. And in fasting, we are making a decision, we are using our minds to refuse the body food. And our bodies remind us that we need food, so we must, throughout the process of fasting, again, using our minds, take control of our desires, the will. And we must subordinate them again and again for the better thing, for communion with God. And in doing so, in the regular practice of fasting, we hope to see our affections our love for God grow and take up the spaces in our hearts, which the things that we neglected now leave. So in fasting, we are saying something with our bodies. We are saying that I do not live by physical food alone, but that my spirit, my spiritual essence, must be sustained and nourished by the word of God. We are saying with our minds that I will choose, I will decide to forego food and to remind myself of my true need. We are saying with our affections that the ultimate and true love of our hearts is God. That that's what we were made for and that is the only thing which can fill us and fill us enough to where other things can actually come in. In our wills, we are saying that I am not controlled by my visceral desires, temptations, or testings. But I am controlled and compelled by a love of and for God the Father in Christ Jesus the Son. That's the internal aspect of fasting. But fasting actually forms and directs our loves not only inward and upward, but outward to others. And so fasting is actually a deeply missional and hospitable discipline having firmly fixed our hearts on God, having rightly ordered him as our supreme love, which goes ahead of all other things in our hearts, we are freed to love others. We would not be finished talking about Christian love unless we understood it as a horizontal thing. Thus, in Matthew 22, 34 through 40, when a Pharisee asks Jesus, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus says, to love the Lord your with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And that is the greatest and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the entire law and prophets. So as my body reminds me that I am finite and in need of provision, as it growls with hunger pains as I seek the Lord, it reminds me that my neighbors too need the provision Of food and the sustenance for their spirit. And notice too that the word being used there is not brothers, which would communicate to the Jews and to Christians some internal workings of the church. He's not saying love the brothers as yourself, not to the neglect of the church, but he says love your neighbors, which defines our groups and our categories fundamentally by proximity rather than affinity. It is about who we are close to, not what we have in common. And so when I fast, I think about my 92-year-old neighbor who lives next door, and I think, what does she need? What provision does she need from those who God has providentially placed around her? How can I care for her? And how can I seek the Lord, asking him in his grace and in his mercy to even late in life make himself known to her? Because the greatest provision she needs is for her regeneration of her dead heart for her to know the Father through the Son whom he sent. And so in this way, fasting reveals our loves and gives us an opportunity to rightly orient and calibrate them towards others. And so we looked the closest around us working, I would suggest, in concentric circles. If you're married, you can think about spouses and children, and then neighbors and church community. If you're single, think about roommates or housemates, co-workers or classmates, nearby family or friends. And if we grasp these three things, that fasting reminds us who we are, it reminds us who God is, and it tells us where our loves are situated, then we know... And we can grasp and understand, we can comprehend the tension of the scriptures around asking. That Jim drew out in the previous sermons on the Lord's Prayer. For the Lord's brother James, in a letter in chapter 4, James 4, 1 through 10, says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You may ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. This is why Jim reminded us that first and foremost, when we pray, as Jesus taught us to, we orient ourselves toward God the Father. And our first petitions are not what I need, but our first petitions are, Lord, your will and your kingdom become. Your name be made great. James goes on to say, you do not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend with the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is of no purpose that the Spirit says he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Be reminded of who you are. You are glorious and in whatever capacity you have, you may have experienced immense success and wealth. But God says, remember that those who think too highly of themselves, the proud will be humbled. But the humble." Will be lifted up because that is who our God is. And we see in this text the fatherly jealousy of God for us, and in that, the fatherly desire to give his children good things. Yet our divided and misdirected hearts often lead us to either not ask or to ask improperly. And it is for purposes like these that Jesus criticizes the hypocrites. I know what you're thinking. Some of you are thinking Tyler has talked about the words when fast and now hypocrites. We're ten words into a seventy-one word paragraph. Cancel your lunch plans. I'm just kidding. We have a members meeting after this. Your lunch plans are here. What makes those? Uh, what makes those that Jesus criticizes? What makes them hypocrites? It is that they neglect everything that I just told you and they do what God gave them to do but for their own gain and purposes. They do it that others might look upon them, not look upon God. They don't do it to remind themselves of who they are or who God is. They do it to lift themselves up as the proud before the rest of the masses. They use the things of God for their own self-interest. They fast for the sake of prestige and religiosity for the treasure of love and admiration of man. The desires of the heart and their will and their aim of their affections are for their own name. They are building citadels of Babel for religious purposes in their own hearts and communities. So if they are successful, Jesus says, well, then that is their reward. If man looks upon them and says, look at those high and mighty people, then that is the reward they have received. And let us not mistake the magnitude of that sentence. For what is the greatest reward our Father could give us? What is the apex, the climax, the top of top in all of heaven? What is it that we long for and desire for most of all and that the end of Scripture in Revelation 21 tells us we will finally have to satiate the desires of our hearts? It is to walk with the Father in the cool streets of the kingdom. And so when he says they have received their reward, what he means is that that reward is no longer available to them. And so they will continue aggrandizing themselves because they have neglected a truth that we have asked and answered for centuries. What is the chief end of man? to glorify God, and to enjoy Him forever and ever. Amen. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, as we have already sung in each of these songs, would you be our vision? Would you be the joy of our heart? Would you guide us and lead us that we might long for you more than anything in this world? And would we, in filling ourselves up for you, find that there is more than enough room for us to love our neighbors as ourselves and for us to proclaim to them the gospel and serve them with our hands in the ways in which you have given us. For we are your workmanship and you have ordained the good works that we might do among our neighbors and our friends and our family so that we might be the salt and light which emanates not from us, but from your kingdom and your spirit to the world. And so we pray these things in our precious and holy Savior's name. In the name of Jesus, amen. Thank you for listening to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We'd love to have you join us in person on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. You can find out more about us at journeyefc.org.